Welcome to our podcast, Regulation Matters, a clear conversation. I'm your host, Lyne Dempsey. I'm uh, the Chief Compliance Officer with Rickabenny Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina. I'm also on the CLEAR Board of Directors, as well as the current chair of the National Certified Investigator Training Committee with CLEAR. And welcome back to our frequent listeners. Um, for our new listeners, the Council on Licensure, Enforcement, and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. You know, our podcast is a chance for you to hear the latest and greatest in our community. And today, I'm very happy to be joined by uh, several people that I've, I've met uh, over the years at CLEAR. Um, first, I'm joined by Lori Dodson uh, with the Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission, and uh, Kevin Huff um, and Sean Pascal with the Colorado Division of Professional Occupations Office of Investigations and Inspections. Uh, we're glad to have all three of you with us today. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Line. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. And again, I, I really uh, I do appreciate you guys being here. Uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, medical mar marijuana and licensure issues. So I I'm going to start the questions off uh, with Lori and Marilyn first. Um, uh, go through several questions with you, and then I'll kind of follow up and, and move transition to, to our Colorado folks. Um, so, Lori, um, what obstacles have you been facing or, or do you face um, regulating an industry with no real guidance from the federal government? That's a great question. Medical cannabis regulation is still fairly new, especially out on the East Coast. I feel like we're still in our infancy, and because of that, regulators they, they face a lack of standardization across the country. I think two very recent issues that we faced um, within the last year, one being the vape crisis and the other is just the regulation of hemp and CBD. Every time a policy issue like that arises, states are faced to really come up with their own solutions. And what happens is there's a, a very disjointed effort across the country. And so within the last couple of years, we've been able to put together a group of cannabis regulators to kind of cut down on that um, lack of standardization, but I think um, as a whole across the country, that is probably one of the biggest growth opportunities for this industry. Well, uh, obviously, you know, as, as a direct board of director for, for CLEAR um, and, and being involved a lot in their educational conferences, I guess how or, or, or I guess how can, can CLEAR as, or as an organization offer to help increase your competency in the field? Well, I'm really excited about CLEAR, and I'm, I'm glad actually one of our investigators um, was a regulatory um, person, I think, from one of the boards and commissions in Maryland prior to coming to the commission, and she introduced CLEAR to us, and I, I think it levels the playing field for our investigators. Our enforcement and compliance team is, is one of the biggest units at the commission, and the staff are very diverse. Um, they, they bring a lot of background and a lot of various strengths. We have retired law enforcement, we have retired clinical lab folks, we have retired um, healthcare and public health officials. And so all of these different strengths are coming together in one place and asked to do one job. And so I think it's really important to incorporate this clear training to allow the compliance staff to really go back to the basics and apply them to a foundation that we're still really building in our program. Well, that's great. I'm glad that we're, we're helpful in that area. Um, you know, obviously, I've, I've been an instructor um, through the, the CLEAR training as well, and obviously, it, it, it's something dear to my heart. I think it's very useful, so that's great. Um, I guess, 
for for you, Lori, uh, what have been the like I guess the biggest um, growing pains or or pain points that you know building a regulatory agency from the ground up has that you've faced? <laughs> it's actually it's the probably one of the biggest pain points, but it's also what attracted me to this industry. Um, it is really we're we're government employees, we're government staff, but we operate at the pace of private industry. Um, I have never seen, and I'd be interested in what my colleagues on the call have to say as well, but I have never seen an industry that is so dynamic and that is so innovative. And how that kind of translate on our edge um, as the regulators is it, it oftentimes makes us feel like we are sprinting to keep up with change. It's, it's, that's been probably the hardest thing is just keeping up with the pace of industry. All right, I mean, this is you know, brand new ground. Um, versus something like, you know, a, a medical board where people have been practicing medicine for, for a long time. Um, I guess it kind of brings me to this question, uh, how is regulating medical cannabis similar to other metal, medical regulatory bodies? Other than all of the jokes that we probably <laughs> get for working at a medical cannabis <laughs> um, <laughs> agency, I, I probably got jokes for two years straight, but at the end of the day, um, we have an industry that we're responsible for ensuring maintains compliance, one, and we have patients that are depending on us to do our jobs um, and so, so that they have access to a safe product. And so I already know that the regulations are going to continue to change and develop as this, the program matures, um, but primarily our focus is always going to be public health and public safety, and I think that's very similar to many medical regulatory bodies across the board. How how long has the commission um, been um, in effect? Is it about three years or something like that? Yeah, we became operational December 1, 2017. That's when product was available to patients for the very first day, December 1, 2017. Prior to that... When it was um, legally, pro legally available. <laughs> yes, let's say that. Let's say legally available to patients. Um, prior to that, I think it was written into statute in 2015, and we had um, some hiccups, you know, getting everybody licensed and, and things. Um, there's a lot of politics that go behind this industry. And so we were up and, and running in uh, December 1, 2017, and we have had just a very, very successful program launch. Um, it's It's been a it doesn't seem like it's been three years. I just realized that I've been with the commission for about three years and time has flown. So uh, I guess since you've been there that time, looking back now, obviously uh, the hindsight has always got perfect 2020, but uh, what are some of your notable successes or failures that you guys have experienced over those three years? There's many. Um, I think probably a notable success though has definitely been our program growth. Like I said, I mean, we began in 2017, we had 17 staff when I started, and it was a primarily um, law enforcement focused program. And we wanted to do this a little bit different in Maryland. We really wanted to turn it into a regulatory body with a medical focus. And so now we're a team of 50 and growing. Um, you know, our, our team, like I said earlier, encompasses law enforcement, encompasses public health, encompasses lab folks, chemists. You know, we wanna make sure that our team is equipped um, with the regulatory side as well as auditors and finance folks for the licensing side. I mean, it's, it's a huge job. It's a heavy lift to run an agency like this. Um, and unlike other states, we're doing it um, inside one agency. So that's a little bit unique to what you might hear for some, from some other states. 
Um, Stigma-wise, we've been able to slowly cut down stigma um, in the in the medical cannabis industry, um, just with you know the general population. Whereas most in the beginning, most folks were kind of like, I don't really want to talk about it or it's bad. You know, people are starting to ask questions. We've done a lot of work to educate folks on what this program is and what it isn't. Um, we've registered to date almost 100,000 patients. We're still receiving about 150 applications per day. Um, and our sales, I think, for Q1 2020 exceeded 91 million. So it's a, it's a successful program. Um, I have a very, very hardworking staff that makes it happen. Um, and it's fun to come to work. Um, probably another success that we've, you know, we're still kind of in the middle of right now is program diversity. Um, it has been a program, a focus for our program within the last year, especially. We've um, been putting a lot of time and effort into educating folks, um, grants, training for individuals interested in the cannabis market. So it's not just big business coming in um, and swallowing up the little guys. Um, failures, there's thousands. Um, I always like to tell folks that call me, you know, ask me what my successes are, but also ask me what my failures are so you're not repeating my failures. But um, probably the biggest one, the most detrimental failure is underestimating patient volume. Um, We've more than once experienced system crashes just because we've had overload issues on our technical, um, our registry and our seed to sell tracking system. We can't track plants, we can't sell plants. And so it, um, I think the summer of 2018 was a nightmare from like May to August because we kept having issues and we had to, to close doors for a while to get that right. But um, that was something that we faced very early on just because of the interest. Um, also, staff development, we've had so, um, we've had a lot of transition, I'll say, um, and we've also grown very quickly, and so to, to maintain that culture and to really develop a staff earlier on probably would have been a benefit for us, but um, we have time now, and we're doing it now, and so I'm excited about what, uh, what the future holds and where we're going. Well, that's awesome. That's great to know. Well, um, let me, let me uh, kind of move over to our Colorado folks. Um, uh, Kevin and Sean, um, I appreciate you guys also joining me um, uh, from, from Colorado. Uh, how long, I guess, let me ask Kevin this. Um, you know, Kevin and I go way back. We've worked together on, on NCIT uh, committee work as well as uh, I think we've done a couple of these podcasts together. But, Kevin, how long has marijuana been legal in Colorado? Okay, so uh, we've had uh, marijuana in the state since uh, 2000, legally in the state since 2000. Right, right. So you guys have, have had some experience, obviously, uh, doing this for some time um, com compared to, to what Lori's been doing with it just only three years. I guess I'm going to ask some different questions. Maybe, first of all, you know, since you guys have been doing this for as long as you have, how do you partner with other agencies for enforcement? Well, in Colorado, we regulate the uh, the division that we work in regulates the licensees. Um, so we partner with other agencies like law enforcement agencies. Um, we've, uh, with Sean and I, both have toured around the state facilitating uh, training opportunities to uh, educate the uh, law enforcement communities on what we do, what how we can help them, and how they can help us. Um, and we uh, also have uh, developed very good contacts by doing that um, because a lot of these, these, the way the industry has, and just as um, Lori mentioned, 
you know, it just kind of just came about and we've just had to figure it out as we've gone along. And so law enforcement, I believe, was kind of uh, left behind. Wouldn't you agree with that, Sean? Yes. Um, the fluidity of this it just continues to grow. And, um, you know, now we have different areas out there um, with the legalization totally in Colorado that has also presented some other areas of interest for um, the medical marijuana community and the marijuana community as, as a whole. So uh, we're trying to catch up both on the regulatory side and on the law enforcement side as well. Right. Um, so I guess, you know, obviously medical mar marijuana is legal in Colorado. Um, I, how how does your regulatory body, and I'll, I'll get and I'll throw this back to Kevin, you know, how does your regulatory body handle licensees who have a recommendation for medical marijuana? Uh, well, that's a good question. So our division, <laughs> um, we get involved with situations when um, we're notified of a licensee if they're impaired at work, um, some along those lines. Otherwise, we don't know if a licensee would have been recommended uh, medical marijuana. That's a, a privacy issue that is, um, we're just restricted from knowing that information. I, I, you know, I mean, I, I liken it very similar to, you know, um, although there wouldn't be necessarily a, a recommendation from your doctor to drink alcohol. Um, but, you know, again, another, another substance that's, uh, you know, regulated um, in, in the States, but, um, you know, you, we still have to deal with practitioners who who uh, are impaired, and I guess it would only be in those kind of scenarios where you guys would, I guess, be notified of this. So would this be, um, I guess, how would you get notified on, on on an impairment issue of some sort? Would it just be some a whistleblower, if you would, or um, have you ever actually had any um, uh, medical professionals that have let you know that a licensee maybe is impaired? Um, so yeah, it would, it, we are, we are a complaint driven agency. So all of our information is based upon complaints. It could be from a, another licensee themselves, like a coworker. It could be from, uh, the hot, let's say it's a physician, right? So, um, or a nurse or somebody who's impaired. So the hospital that they work at might have, uh, noticed that they were impaired while, while on the job. So then they would possibly ask them for a test and everything along those lines um, to see if they are impaired. Then they would then report them to our division where we would then take our action if we needed to take action based upon the information that we got, we would have to investigate. Um, so and, I guess, yeah, that was a good, that's a great, what, what would you guys do then? So if we were uh, notified of an action, um, yeah, we would look into it. We would, um, uh, based upon all our licensees have the opportunity to respond to a complaint. So we would send them notification of the complaint. We would also, um, at the time, we would, um, based upon the information again, we might uh, have them sign an interim cessation of practice agreement, right? Because our mission at our uh, in our division is a, uh, consumer protection. So we want to protect the citizens of Colorado. And in doing so, if we can get them to sign an interim cessation of practice agreement, 
Um, they're ceasing practice. They're, it's not a disciplinary issue at this point. We're just having them cease practice so we can investigate and look into the situation. Once we have um, determined, we being the, um, the, the governing board has determined if the uh, individual has um, violated the uh, practice standards, then that person would uh, possibly be disciplined at that time. You know, again, that depends upon what the board decides. And and also, those cases are also expedited. Um, we do have three levels of um, uh, statuses for cases, and that one, those cases, when they come in, they're expedited, so they're taken care of um, typically pretty quickly, so that we don't um, have any sort of haste and the consumer protection portion, and we're making sure that we are doing what we need in, in order to make sure that patients are taken care of correctly by their um, practitioners and um, no one is harmed because of inaction or action that shouldn't have been taken due to impairment. And part of our uh, investigation too is with the impairment, not only with uh, marijuana, but with any type of impairment, whether it was alcohol, as you mentioned earlier, or let's just say they have a, another type of substance abuse impairment, we would have them, um, uh, the boards would then um, ask them to go for an evaluation to, again, ensure that they are safe to practice. Right. That, that makes good sense. So, Kevin, um, with this, you mentioned earlier this interim cessation practice agreement. Is is that like a public document, or is that something that you guys can can offer up to the to the licensee as a you know hey look we just want you to agree to stop practicing right now so that we can do our investigation and it's not public at the moment. Um, well, they they actually they are public, but they are listed as non disciplinary, so they are actually put upon our website so the public can see them. Um, but they, again, are non-disciplinary. So that's the kind of the incentive um, for an individual to sign it. It's not disciplinary, so therefore it's not going to necessarily be reported to the specific um, other regulatory boards that, you know, go throughout the uh, United States that then report to other states. Um, so um, if they were, once they complete their evaluations and let's say they are, for example, um, found to be um, not safe to practice, then the board would um, request a disciplinary action, which would also be public and show up on our website, but then that could be reported to um, other states if they were licensed in other states, I should say. Gotcha, just a uh, clearinghouse like a national practitioner data bank or something like that. That's great. Yeah. Well, um, let me, let me ask Sean um, a question here. So, um, Sean, who has prescriptive authority for medical marijuana in your state? In Colorado, we only have uh, physicians, licensed physicians that are able to recommend for medical marijuana, although physician assistants and nurse practitioners in Colorado can prescribe um, other medicines, they can't, in Colorado, they cannot prescribe medical marijuana or make recommendations for medical marijuana. Only a licensed physician can do that. And, you know, the, I think part of the reason for that is a lot of physicians 
don't prescribe medical marijuana. So if you go to your primary care physician and you've been going to that physician for say 10 years or whatever, all your medical records are housed there with that medical, that uh, medical provider. And then you come up with, you have an injury that um, you go to another physician for that will give you the recommendation for medical marijuana. So not every physician in Colorado, even though they're, they're all licensed, although they're licensed physicians, not all physicians will uh, write per, uh, recommendations for medical marijuana, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I'm just making sure. So um, all, all licensed physicians can make a recommendation for it, but many choose not to. Is that kind of what you mean? So if they have the training, they also have to go through train specific training to recommend medical marijuana. And a lot of them just, they, they, they don't do it. So that, in okay. essence, the medical marijuana prescri uh, recommendations are almost a specialty in and of itself here in Colorado. Okay. That makes, makes, makes good sense to me then. Okay. Thank you. Let me, let me go back to Kevin here on, on this. So, are there evaluations that need to be completed by a physician um, in order to determine um, that, you know, they've established a patient-doctor relationship or, you know, what are the requirements there? Uh, yeah, so the the um, physician and the patient, they must have a, a treatment or a counseling relationship. So it can't be just a, you know, you call somebody up and they just write you a uh, recommendation. You actually have to have had a relationship with them. So that that requires that, you know, they must complete like a full medical assessment of the patient's history. Um, they must also review for previous diagnosis or debil debilitating or disabling medical conditions. Um, because otherwise, you know, they're not doing the full assessment on, on that aspect. And so, it's almost like if you were to prescribe um, another type of medication that would counteract with something. They need to know what, you know, all the medications that the patient is on. They don't want to have some uh, person have some irreversible uh, reactions or anything to the uh, marijuana. Um, and also, go ahead, John. Um, I was just going to point out that physicians, they must meet with, the patients face to face and do a physical examination. Um, in the past, we've had issues with um, physicians not doing the proper um, investigation on their part or the proper examinations to ensure that the patient is eligible for a recommendation for medical marijuana. So this is one of those um, caveats that have been placed in to make sure that everyone's being uh, treated the same way everyone's getting the same sort of treatment and examination and there's no gray area so that we are limiting the amount of um, patients that might be fraudulently obtaining recommendations if that makes sense oh yeah um, definitely you know and it, it'll be interesting as we continue to navigate COVID-19 to see if any of these things change um, as you know we enter into a new a new area of telemedicine and, and things like that down the road because, um, you know, this isn't going away tomorrow. Um, so it'd be interesting to follow up with that at some point in time to see, you know, what changes actually occur on that. But I can understand why you'd want to do a physical, um, uh, you know, assessment so that you're, you know, 
you can gain a lot more information from just you know having someone call you and asking for this right so when and when you're relying on the the patient records and if a physician sends patient records patient record a to um the physician and who's going to recommend the medical marijuana that physician should still look and, and see to make sure you know yes this person did have surgery or they they um are constantly throwing up or they you know they, they just make sure that they really do meet the the physical requirements that um, would enable them to receive the, the recommendation so it's basically two sets of doctor's eyes in essence on these patients gotcha um well uh I guess do they then have to like get like a registration card or anything like that? Like how do, how does it all work with that? Yeah. So after that, the the situation with the registry cards has changed somewhat here in Colorado. Uh, it's actually a much faster process than it used to be. But um, after the physician has done all the consultations with the patient and they've met with them and they're able to develop the process to say yes, I'm available for follow up. The physician has to be available to follow ups for the patient and stuff like that. Then, um, once that patient has met all the requirements, then that, the doctor usually um, fills out all the paperwork to send in for the medical um, registry identification card, or they, the client could actually do that as well. But it's it's quicker if the patient does it. So once they have all of their paperwork in order and it's stamped off by that that the actual physician who is recommending the medical marijuana then that patient is eligible for um, the medical registry card, but they actually have to receive the card before they can um, start using the medication. Interesting. Cool. Well, thanks, guys, um, and thanks, Lori. Um, I really think it's been a great discussion. Um, so I guess let me formally thank, uh, you know, Lori, Kevin, and Sean, um, uh, specifically for your time and, and being a part of this CLEAR podcast. Um, you know, I've always said this, you know, I think it's a great opportunity to talk and, and about these issues and learn from each other. And I thought it was particularly interesting today just, you know, seeing an organization that has been doing this for, you know, a long time versus a, a new commission that's only been in, in, in effect for three years. So I think um, it's some good information, and I'm so thankful that you guys could able to, to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. And I also want to you know, take a moment to thank our listeners. Um, you know, I appreciate you uh, checking in with our podcast uh, on a regular basis. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. Um, and again, um, if you're, you're new to the Clear podcast, please subscribe. Um, it's on um, a bunch of different areas, or different um, podcast um, avenues. Um, it's on Podbean, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and TuneIn. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you know, please leave us a rating or comment in the app. Um, those reviews really do help us improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free to also visit our website at www.clear.com hq.org for additional resources, as well as a calendar of upcoming training programs and events, uh, including some training moving into the online format. 
Um, finally, thanks to our CLEAR staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson. Um, she's our content coordinator and editor for this program. Um, again, I'm Lyon Dempsey, and thanks again for joining us.